Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Yeah. Yes, we know. We're we'll decorate yeah, we'll decorate yeah, we're going to decorate the tree after mom and dad do their podcast. Oh my god, man. How do you do this alone? I don't even My mom raised 3 kids, got divorced, and moved across the country with three kids and raised us and <laughs> millions of people do it. I know. I just Millions upon millions. Of course they do. Our single parents. Yep. We're lucky we have each other though. Yeah, I I did this on my own for a while and I guess I got it done and it, it centers you. You can't do anything else. That is for sure. You are pretty much living your life for your, for your child, especially because they've in those most cases, if you're on your own parenting in a lot of those cases, somebody has died or somebody is divorced. And so you're also dealing with the fallout of that. I was in, I was in New York. I was living um, both in New York and here in Seattle and, um, and splitting time. And my show was on over in New York city and I had gone over there, uh, under some false pretenses on the relationship side. I remember she went over early a few weeks before I got there and, and I got off the plane and I'll never forget. I, as soon as I got off the plane and I had little Arlie with me, who was three at the time, I went, Oh no, this is over. I knew it, but you go through the motions and you keep going. So I won't go through the all the details, the gory details of how I got there. But finally, when this all fell apart, she left. And I remember someone asking me later, how did you feel? Like, were you, were you just sad about that? Were you like, man, that, that person's gone? I said, it was like a millisecond. And I was so relieved. Yeah. I, and I went into the bedroom for something. And I remember looking at the bed and just laying down and like a snow angel. I was like, oh, it's mine. <laughs> and isn't that I want to sleep alone? I love cuddling with you. We've definitely made that clear on this podcast. I'm a cuddler. So it wasn't that. It's that I had, I was finally free. Well, I don't think you were cuddling in that marriage. No, there's no, there's no, that was a, that was a cuddless, uh, <laughs> cuddless. I didn't understand the joys of cuddling till I found someone I really wanted to cuddle. That's you. Um, so yeah, it was a cuddleless marriage. <laughs> Um, so I was, I, I remember that day it was, it was, you know, it was a big day, right? She's gone. I'm in this apartment. I'm Lower East Side. I have this little kid and I realize I'm doing all the things I usually do. Like I was already making dinner and I was already doing most of the work. And so I remember making him dinner and probably ordering dinner. I think we went and got pizza actually. Uh, I was in New York. What do you want me to do? And so I put him to bed and I'm like, this is, I got this. This is like, I got this. This I was made to do this. I am a dad. I signed up for this. And I remember getting a beer. I got a Stella. I remember at the time, those are just like, were a thing in I New know. York. They weren't Stella. even over in Seattle yet. And uh, I sat down on this couch. I put my feet up. I like turned on the TV, opened my beer. I got this. And the fucking cat shows up and walks across my stretched out feet. I went, oh my God, I got to take care of this goddamn cat. It was her cat. I don't want to take care of the cat. I'm a dog guy. I don't want to take care of this cat. 
So me and Rocky the cat became very, very dear friends after that night. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. On today's Doctor and the DJ podcast, we're going to talk to our friend Wajma Samise, who is an amazing woman. She's one of our favorite human beings. She owns her own business. She is a single mother. She um, is helping Afghan artists, artists and families. It's uh, it's a conversation I really want you to hear. We we really respect and love Wajma, and we're so happy she spent some time with us. So that's coming up in a few minutes. We're going to listen to the music from Margot Silker. I love this. Uh, our friend Sarah Cahoon, and look Sarah Cahoon up if you don't know Sarah Cahoon. She is a brilliant uh, singer-songwriter, and she produced this record. And uh, Margot Silker, and I don't want to put too much pressure on her, but I feel like she's our Lucinda Williams. She is just this just amazing like the songs are deep. There's a lot of great themes in there. Her backing band's amazing. There's a bunch of Portland indie musicians who are involved who play with Jesse Sykes and Decemberis. Sarah's involved in it, and Marco just has put together a great record. It's called Pohoril. And uh, Silco recorded these songs uh, away from Nashville and the whole country world and recorded in Portland. And I'm just really psyched that we're going to be listening to some of it. And then later we'll play a full song from her. And we will continue to talk about being. Uh, a single parent, and I'll tell you about how I went into a lawyer's office and it changed my life. Well, I wish I was my brother. I could up any room that I ever walked through. All that matters is what's in your head, that's true. I wish I was my brother. So let me get this straight. You were totally good with the human, but yeah. you were like, no, nah, I can't take care of this kid. Well, uh, Arlie could go to the, the bathroom and flush it down the toilet. This had a, <laughs> this had a, <clears throat> this, this thing had a, uh, uh, almond roca. Yeah. It had like a, yeah, almond roca. That's gross. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I am a dog person, but that cat, you know, that cat, we, everyone loved that cat. Rocky was a super cat. So I don't want to get down on the cat or that. I don't like cats. I just, uh, that cat I had given to her. I literally, I know it was her cat because I gave it as a present years before. She wanted a cat. So I ended up like, why did I end up with a cat? I signed up for that. I signed up for the kid though. And um, I remember taking him to uh, the playground there. And in New York, you, you don't hang out in your place that much, small places. And so you're always out. You know, that's why I love New York. You, you have to go out. We would go up to the um, Tompkins Square Park where later you and I got engaged. Yep. And um, he went to school right across the street from there and- um, I was like a movie where the single guy suddenly looks around at everybody and there should have been strings playing like couple, 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 kid, 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 kid. Oh yeah. You know, just like, and my kid is probably missing a shoe. It's cold. You didn't bring a jacket. You know, I'm like, I had this and then <clears throat> I'm walking back to my apartment. And um, I mean, it's getting real cold now, right? I'm just like, I felt so good. Like, we're going to do this. We'll go to the park, just me and him next, you know. And a woman being in New York goes, put a coat on that child. It's freezing cold. It's like, <laughs> and I went, I'm sorry. It wasn't when I left in that voice. Like, and so you have these, these high highs, and this goes for parenting in general and, and these low lows. But I think when I was on my own, it just felt like there was, there's no like, what can I, can I just default to you? Could you, could you? 
take care of, you know, we do that sometimes like, okay, I'm, I don't got this. This is no, tapping in and tapping out. Well, one thing I think that is important to mention, we've mentioned this before in parenting, it's not good days and bad days. It's like good seconds and bad seconds or yeah. good minutes and bad minutes. Everything's going great. And then in a second, it can turn yeah. and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and then in a second, it can turn again to being great. And so it's not bad days and good days at all. Do you know what, it, it, you know, it's so important to have a good relationship or, or even no relationship if you're, if you want to be a good parent, because I remember I became fun again. Mm. I mean, I became fun again. I, I, you know, those pictures we have of Arlie and he's, he, we would send him on Christmas cards and he had like, my mom, my mom built this created my mom wasn't a crafts person but we have this thing she made a christmas tree at a it's like the only jewelry. crafty thing she did yeah when she it's died so awesome it's too. all i wanted i looked yeah. at my siblings and went i want the christmas tree thing i don't care what else you can have you can have all everything have her car i don't care i want that thing i love it it's because she's not a crafts person those pictures we have them that's july or something it's it's like in the middle because i just one day decided we we're gonna have christmas in the house just to have fun and then i remember when we we had these you know like five or six pizza places around our neighborhood and one night I'm like, Arlie, go get the lightsabers. Let's go get pizza. And he's like, well, I don't know what this means, but I'm very excited. And so we got these two lightsabers and we just ran down the street battling each other with lightsabers to go get a couple of slices. And it's New York. No one cares. Yeah, nobody cares. Yeah, they're just laughing. And I just remember becoming like a fun person again. But then I had to I had to deal with <laughs> this, this divorce. <laughs> and I remember, so I... I I have our, so I have Arlie full time now, but, um, at the time it was like five days a week or something, which ended up being usually six or seven. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I, I can't, this, I can't watch him this weekend. I, I won't go watch on. him. I don't want to go uh, watch your own child. Yeah, I know. Anyway, <laughs> but it was fine. I was like, whatever I got him. And, um, I, I had to get divorced and this is new. And I, I know you felt the same way. Like I didn't feel bad that I was getting divorced. I didn't feel sad about that. What I felt like is I just wasted 10, you know, almost 10 years of my life and I failed at this and I was never going to fail at marriage. I wasn't going to, my parents did everyone or their generation seems like they did. And I just felt like a failure. Just like, mm -hmm. man, what a waste of, I just wasted all the time. And every time I'd go back to this, to this day, and, and people will tell me this too. Well, you, you got Arlie out of it. You got your kid. So every time I got to go, all right, fine. Or if I hear, but I will tell you, if I hear other people getting divorced or break up, my first question is like, do they have a kid? Uh, no. Ah, they'll be fine. They're going to be fine. No, they're really sad. I know they are, but they're going to be fine. Like, Well, divorce isn't bad news. Divorce is always good news. It's always good news. Yeah. It might take a second to get there. Yeah. But it's always good news because you don't want to stay stuck and stagnant in your life. That's right. And something that's not working or where you're not happy. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. And I often think about, um, you know, I went through a divorce, you went through a divorce, and we wouldn't be who we were without those experiences. Mm -hmm. So as much as it sucked, or sometimes, you know, we think, oh, we wasted all this time, but there was something we had to learn, and it wasn't time wasted. I learned a lot. Yeah, that's we call, for sure. we've said this, I'm sure, before on this podcast, our starter marriages have, have I don't go down any of the traps that I would go down in those, right? Like, yeah. I, like I've learned a lot, and- I try to remember that when I think of how many years. Um, well, I, so I had to deal with this divorce. So what do I do? I Google divorce lawyers. And like, <laughs> In New York City. Yeah. And I find one of the 
first ones. She seems highly rated and sure. And so I, you know, get it, got in a train and I went up to the, the, I don't even know what neighborhood we were in. I, I went up, it wasn't the neighborhood I lived in. I'm in this train all nervous. And this is just, man, I'm remembering this now. Just sitting there again, if it was a movie, I'm just the lonely dude. Maybe Nick Drake, Elliot Smith's playing. I'm staring off in the distance. I'm sure people are making out next to me. Everybody's happy. That's not true. And then we, I go up to the office and she's, she answers the door, her secretary. And I go in there and she says, within seconds of me sitting down, she's like, four foot two, just like this, just like full of it. She could have kicked my ass. She was just this like tiger. She says, all right, Mr. Richard, I remember Mr. Richards. Yeah. Tell me what's going on. And I said, well, I'm, I, I need to get divorced. She's like, well, do you have kids? I said, yes, I have one kid. Well, you're in big trouble. You've picked the worst city, the worst borough, the worst state to get divorced and have a child custody case in also the most expensive. That was within two minutes of me meeting this woman. And then you said you're hired. I said you're hired because at least you're uh, at least straightforward straight, and honest. Straight, yeah. <laughs> and 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 then she you know goes into and you're the man. You're not going to get the kid, and you know you got to be prepared for that. And uh, and it sounds like affairs. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm I'm fully aware of that. And and <laughs> and as we get near the end of the meeting, she's like, I'll take this on, you know, and we'll, I'll fight for you. And 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 I said, he says, well, you know, when do you get to see him? I said, well, he lives with me. He's we're at home together and you just you go i'm sorry you're you're home with him i said oh yeah she left said, don't ever let her back in <laughs> <clears throat> said okay i won't um and so i don't think i've ever told that story uh, to anyone but amy but um i said oh i don't think that's gonna happen i think uh this person's got other things going on and i want to raise my son there and um <laughs> said you're hired and i remember getting in that train to go home and thinking well you know, we're, we're going to go down fighting because she rules, you know, and she's going to be honest with me. And it ended up, she just mostly had to walk me through everything. We, we, I didn't get into this, you know, terrible court battle or anything. Cause I think we just wanted to end it and, uh, and split everything and we moved on with it. Um, but it was, but it took forever. It took forever. And I just remember thinking that we're all just built differently. We're not all built to parent. That's just how it is. And it's unfortunate for the kids of that. My dad did not want a parent. He, he wanted nothing to do with parenting, right? Like he couldn't be a dad. He, he couldn't do it. He just, he was really fucking bad at it. Just the worst. And my mom was pretty great. And she got better as we got older, in my opinion. And so I don't fault the person I was with. Like, I, I mean, I do, but, but. They're just not built to be a parent. I just remember thinking, I signed up for this and I'm sticking with this and and getting him through this life. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that happens. And and I remember thinking, I don't, I will be single. I, I don't want to go through that ever again. I'm probably never going to get married again. I'm done with relationship. I'm just going to focus. I'm going to do my work. And, I, and I'm sure many people have had this thought. And I'm, and I'm just going to no love in my life. <laughs> just, I'm not, I don't need it. I am a monk now. I, I'm never having sex again. Just me and this kid. That didn't last very long. Cause I, I called Amy up uh, one night. I told, have we told that story? I, I, I put him to bed. Amy was my buddy. We are buddies. We are buddies. And I knew you had an event. And I, but I called you. Cause you knew you. I'd be up till like three in the morning. Yeah. Cause you do an event. You're like the last person out of there. And, um, I put Arlie to bed and I 
I made coffee. I couldn't sleep. I woke up at like five and I, I lived on the fifth floor walk up. So you could go up on the roof and, and look at the bridges and it was just great. And I'd go up there sometimes. So anyways, I bring my coffee. I remember that. And I remember thinking it, it, like, I felt really bad that I left my kid, <laughs> my kid's like a hundred yards away. Not even that. Um, but I went up there real quick and had a coffee and I'm, like, I'm going to call Amy. And if she doesn't answer, I'll just leave a message. I just want to check in with her. And I called, I called Amy and she answered. And I went from like, I'm just calling Amy to say hi and just checking in. But she answered the fucking phone. I didn't know. Who answers up that the late phone at anymore? Two in the yeah. Back then we That's answered right. the phone. And it was two in the morning in Seattle, five in New York. I would have never answered Prime now. Prime time to be calling people. Um, and I just said, would you come visit me here in New York? There was no pause. Yep, I would. And she did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> then we got married. The end. So the moral of my story <laughs> is call your friends in the middle of the night and ask them to fly across the country. If you're going through a divorce, if you think every there's someone listening right now is going through it and they're like, it's never going to get better. This is this is the most long drawn. It's so easy to get married. Holy shit, man. Piece of cake. You can go down anytime. Go down to the courthouse. You're good. Or you can do a whole thing. Right. Mm hmm. But getting divorced, boy, that's really set up so you don't get divorced because it is this horrible, long, drawn out just and you think this will never end. I am in hell. It is very hard to stay centered and like stay positive and stay above water going through this. I'm telling you, getting through that, do everything you can to get through that. If you have to settle, if you have to like lose some resources or you have to do it, the important thing is you get through it. Don't sit and fight to the bitter end. I'm not saying give up and give in, but. But if it's resources and things like that, oh my God. Oh yeah. I remember some pretty significant concessions in my divorce. That's right. Where my lawyer's like, you don't have to do that. You do not uh, no. have to concede that. That's right. And I said, I don't give a fuck. I need out. Yeah, I need out. I would write a check yeah. for the value of this right That's now. Right. Right? Yeah, ask yourself. Like, ask yourself, how much there would you is. write that check That's for? Right. That's exactly right. Because your life is worth so much more. Yeah, I just remember laying in bed when I was still married and it was just awful. Things were awful. And I remember thinking, I'd do anything to yeah. get out of this. So when you're actually What's presented the number with that, on yeah, that what, check? exactly. Yep. I would fight to the death for Write my the son. damn check and get out. That's right. I would I'd take a bullet for that kid. I would stand in, you know, in traffic if I had yeah. to, but but I would never concede that. But resources right. things like I I just wanted out. Who gives a fuck? Yeah, it was years yeah. ago. So moral of my story, I guess, is don't give up. Just keep centered keep just take care of yourself this is a very important time in your life and if you haven't been through it well congratulations you don't have to go through any of this hopefully but if you do go back to this podcast later wasn't much of a warning he disappeared one morning put his mattress up on the back of pickup truck and i've been working my shoulders had all kinds of technical issues to get this interview going on a beautiful Sunday here in Seattle. And um, we went from the worst tinty sound ever. And I said, you need to find a microphone somewhere. And you reappeared uh, in a studio. You reappeared with nicer mics than we have. And it looks like you are in 
in a in a studio suddenly it, it was it went from like your living room couch to a studio within minutes where are you right now so i'm in my baby daddy's garage no i'm just <laughs> uh, this is the the critical son contact creates studio so my son's dad has a recording studio so i was like let me just run over there <laughs> he'll know what to do and look i'm, yeah. I'm in a good spot now yeah, we went yeah. from almost like canceling it or having you come over to the house for brunch next week yeah. to record this. And now we have you in a Which studio. I am so always it, in favor of brunch, you know. Well, we so. can still do that. Yeah. We can still do that. Now now Amy can get to the introductions and we can we can get on with this. Amy? We are talking to our good friend, Wajma Samezai, who is the owner of an awesome boutique on Capitol Hill called Retail Therapy. If you haven't been there, you need to go to Retail Therapy immediately. And she's also a single mom, and she is also a first-generation Afghan immigrant. She's going to talk to us today about what it's like uh, running a shop on Capitol Hill, being a single mom, and some of the work that she's been doing with some families in Afghanistan and some artists recently. We should mention, if you are outside of Seattle, Capitol Hill, uh, in the news quite a bit during the protests, during the pandemic as small businesses were also in the news during the pandemic, uh, and and you were in the center of all of that. And uh, retail therapy is just blocks from Life on Mars, our our bar. Yes. Uh, so we are retail uh, neighbors as well. But that is a lot of stuff over the last, well, your whole lifetime. But over the last few years, it seems like it's been um, it's been. I a think very we should call time. Capitol Hill uh, the center of the universe. <laughs> yeah, take it from Fremont. <laughs> I mean, Fremont tries to claim it, but really, we know where we're at in the middle of everything, all the excitement, where all the people gather. When we were looking for spots for our bar and we found the place on Capitol Hill, one of the first things I said is, oh, we're by Washma. (laughs) Let's lease it. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us, um, as Amy mentioned, can you can you just tell us your history when you were younger so we can um, just hear a little bit of your life story about getting here to America and how old you were and, and did you come, was it? straight to Seattle? Could you just give us a little bit of of where you were born and and how you got here? Yeah, I kind of love this story sometimes because people ask me all the time, where are you from? And it's a hard (laughs) thing to say when you're someone like me. Um, There was a few years ago, this whole idea of anchor baby came around. I don't know if you remember that. Mm, And so mm -hmm. I tell people I'm an anchor baby. You know, my folks were in the U.S. My dad got a scholarship at 17 to come from Afghanistan and study in the U.S. So first he went to the circle and then he got a full scholarship to MIT. And then while he was MIT, that's where I was born. So Boston is actually my birthplace. And then about eight months or so into it, my mom was like, you know, I think I'm going to go back to Kabul. And so we went back to Afghanistan and my dad finished things up in the U.S. And I was there fully all in, in a world that most people really can't imagine, because most people think of Afghanistan as this place of dirt and sand and really grief, right? Like so much war and so much turmoil for so many years. But that definitely was not what my earliest memories of being there was. Um, And then when the Soviet invasion came along, my folks managed to escape. And first we went to Paris. So we were in Paris for two years. And then from Paris, we 
still were in that flea mode because we didn't know at what point we would be sent back to Kabul and at which point they were allowed to come to the U.S. because since I was born in the U.S., I've always been an American citizen. And that was our entry point back in. So once we arrived to the U.S., we landed in D.C. and we lived a few blocks away from the MLK library in D.C. And back in the 80s and the Reagan times, I can assure you it was wild. And I learned Spanish long before I learned English because low-income public schools were a whole different world back then. And then from there, my dad got a job in eastern Washington in Pullman of all places. And every year I thought, are we going to move again? Until I landed in Seattle. That's my long, short story. How old were you when you left Afghanistan and went to Paris? I was seven. You you mentioned people's vision of it. And you're, you're right. When, as soon as you said that, I said, what is my image? That is my image. What, what's yours at seven? What do, what do you see? You know, at seven was harder than let's say at four or five. And it's hard to imagine that you could remember so much at four or five, but in my case, I remember a lot. And there was a transition from it being a really great, warm place, happy, the way that kids see things to, fear-driven because when the Soviets came through, they were really cruel and very public with the way that they were being cruel. So that shift was significant. And some of my memory is a little bit different because I think of a place that's lush. And then there's this whole story about why the Soviets thought they had the green light to come through Afghanistan. And it apparently goes back to Nixon Because when Nixon and the Soviets had a conversation about it, he said, what would I want to do with that piece of dirt? And so Mm -hmm. the Soviets thought, he doesn't know any better. Let's go in. And the doesn't know any better part is that there's so many resources there. That's why so many people have fought over there for so many years, like centuries upon centuries, right? There's a lush environment and there's also immense wealth in the ground, There's lapis, there's real rubies, there's silica now, which is why the Chinese are so very much interested in it now. Um, There's gold. So all these natural resources, and it's in the middle of everything. So if you conquer Afghanistan, you have access because it's truly like Central Asia. Like there's, there's no more central place than that between Russia to water, access to water, Russia's access to oil is all possible through Afghanistan. You know, you got to you got to get through there to make it happen. When I hear things like that, and I think and I hear wealth and resources, it makes me think how fucking insane we are as humans. (laughs) Like we we made all this shit up, right? Like we made it up. Yes. We made up what is valuable and what's not. And unfortunately, yeah. what we've made up is uh, certain things have more value than human life, right? Yeah. And the way we use resources, like, we've got to come up with something better. <laughs> you know, we've got to come up with a better way in a world community. But I think in a lot of ways, we're kind of stuck. We're kind of stuck in that mindset. We're we're addicted to trying to figure out survival. And... For human beings, there's like, I always think about my what my grandmother said to me when I was little. She was like, there's actually only two truths. One is that you're born. And the other is that you'll someday die. You don't really know when, but that is an absolute. 
And I think part of our obsession as human beings is somehow thinking we're going to survive. We're going to somehow outsmart, outresource whatever the end is. And part of that made up story of like digging into our resources, I think, comes from there. It's this like innate need to think, oh, if I do this, then maybe, maybe I'll survive. And that's what's running in the background, that little hamster on the wheel that's always running. When, when you, you're in Seattle and you've been in Seattle some time. Yeah. Did you always think you were going back? Did you want to go back? Was it just not even a possibility? I didn't know that it would be a possibility, but when I did get to go back, I took it because I didn't know when I would have another chance mm. and I needed some closure. When you're a kid, you make up all these stories and I have the same feeling about Paris. You know, you can look at it through these like beautiful rose colored glasses and then there's a longing that occurs when you've been displaced as an immigrant or refugee and it's just like when you go through a bad breakup or something, right? It's like, how to close that door gently without like carrying yeah. it around you forever. And for me, I knew going back wasn't going to be the same. And as a general rule, I tend not to look too much to cling to the past. I try to stick to, okay, what's happening now? However, I do feel like returning was truly healing for me because I really got a sense of the people. Like, I mean, when you were talking about wealth, wealth to me is so different now, right? Like, the people are the parts that have always, like, driven me or that I'm I'm moved by. The week that we went was when the first time ever that suicide bombers had arrived in Kabul. Mm. I was like, of course, the week that we come, that's what's going on, right? But people were so gracious anyway. They were so generous anyway. They would laugh at the ridiculous anyway. And they had a sense of family and community and generosity. And I was like, oh, no, those are the things that I actually come from. I don't come from this other piece that's like this inflicted pain from war and disaster from outside sources. Can, can I ask you? What the general like reception of a average Seattleite is when they find out where you're from? I I'm curious. I don't think I've asked, had an opportunity to ask anyone from Afghanistan. What is the view of Afghanistan from? You know, it comes in the news because we've been in, invaded that country and in, in the longest war in our history, right? But but an Afghan person, what has been your yeah. experience when people? talk to you about, when people talked about where you're from, which is what we tend to do too. I, you could comment on that as well. I think it comes in different phases. One is a lot of times when people meet me, they see me, but they don't know where I'm from. So they guess. And I love to make people guess. <laughs> I love them to go through. I love to have people just go through the long list of ethnicities that they Is there a common one you get? And then you're is like, that like, Boston. <laughs> yeah, say Boston. Yeah, Paris. <laughs> I say Pullman sometimes when I'm feeling really like extra salty. I'm like, yes. I'm from Pullman, which is the truth. I am from Pullman. Yeah. Um, sure. I'm from all these places. But there's two directions. One, I say I'm African and they keep hearing African. Like, no, not African. Okay, you didn't look black. Well, there's the whole world in Africa that's not just black. But yes, okay, no, I'm not African. I'm Afghan. And usually when I say Afghan and I follow up with Afghanistan to really clarify that that's where I'm from, right. they're like, well, did you wear a burqa growing up? So that's always like 
the immediate next question or aren't you grateful that you're here, that you're not this mm. suppressed female being? I'm like, oh, you oh, know, man. my whole experience was not any of that, not as a kid. And at some point, actually, before I went back to Afghanistan in 2006, I had the opportunity to interview her in a way, because here I am, this Americanized Afghan girl, and I have these ideas and maybe romanticized notions of what it was like to be a kid in Kabul also, as a girl, right? The first girl in my family. And and she was so like, no, I went to school. I had a job. I like married I, she was in love with my grandfather like none of these like stereotypical things were a thing for her and it really made me realize that oh yeah no actually there was a time in Afghanistan and this is a hard part for people to comprehend that women in Kabul had more rights than women in America in the same time period mm-hmm. and what war does is it limits all of that potential right And post 9-11, I I met a lot of American women who reached out to me because they were like, oh, you know, in the 70s, I, through Peace Corps and through this this time period, I opted to travel all over and I landed in Afghanistan, which was always a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. And they all said the same thing. I was treated with respect. I had a lot of freedom. I could go wherever I wanted to go. And I felt more free there than I did in the U.S. So... If that was true in the 20s when my grandmother was moving around, really, as a young female, and it was true even in the 70s, then what shifted, and and this is really universally true, I think the moment we try to control women or suppress them, that's when societies fail. I agree. I've had this idea recently, I've been thinking about this a lot, that we're kind of in this like broken masculine narrative Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that like masculine energy is is great but it's like this mm-hmm. broken masculine energy and that comes mm-hmm. with trying to control people and yeah. control people through war control women through reproductive rights or whatever just control them in general and it's broken but you yeah. bright, bring up a really good point about how sometimes we make these assumptions that we're always moving forward in progress and that's just not true and i think it's really a fallacy to have that have that assumption that as time passes, we move forward. I mean, we have to be conscious about where we're going and how we're going, right? Going back to your question, John, about my want to return to Afghanistan, part of it is, okay, if I'm going to go, I have to be willing to be open. Because if I come in with all these like preconceived notions, there's no opportunity. I always use this thing for myself where it's like miracles don't occur in our perfect boxes there's just Mm. no space for that if you have this like very controlled philosophy or perspective on, on anything on a place there's just no opportunity for magic or surprise and I think again I think survival drives us to try to control things and really, if we make peace with the fact that we really don't have any control, life does what life does. And it, it's not personal. It doesn't really care. It just, it's so, you know? So, Waj, why don't you tell us how and when and why you decided to open Retail Therapy in Seattle? Was this after you came back from Afghanistan or had you opened the shop before? No, um, so I opened my shop before. Um, 
I worked for a company that was really, really awesome. And they got bought out three times while I was employed with them. And with each switchover, somehow they used me as part of the deal. They're like, <laughs> You're valuable. <laughs> they're like, okay, is she coming on board? If she is, okay, we'll close this deal. So I kept, I was working at the same place and it kept changing names, but you know, I was like still doing what I was doing. And my boss one day looked at me and he was like, lady, you accrued like six weeks of vacation and you either use it now or lose it. I was like, well, shit, I better use it. Let me, let me take care of that. And, and it was post 9-11 and so much had happened. Like 9-11 was such a tough time for me because I felt like in the minority of my perspective, Mm. And it was the first time that Americans really felt something on this soil for themselves. Modern America. Obviously, the natives had a whole other experience. But I wanted to go out in the world again. And so I opted to travel for six weeks. And I went to Spain and Portugal and Morocco. And before we headed to Morocco, everywhere I went, people were like, well, do you really want to go to Morocco? It's a Muslim country. They're going to behead you. You're a woman. Like the the excuses and ideas for why I shouldn't go was endless. And for me, I couldn't look at one more tourist church. So I was like, no, I really do need to go to Morocco. Mm. And when we landed there, there was like this call to prayer, like the moment we got there. And it was strangely liberating like it was such a beautiful sound and I didn't have the the weight of all the other stories that came with it and people were so kind and so generous like I wanted to spend money in Morocco and I couldn't because people just kept wanting to give us things right and I remember having a conversation with this like younger man he was maybe like 16 17 and he was squeezing fresh orange juice every single day right before the fast break and so where are you from and I was like oh you know I'm traveling from the U.S. and he said why do Americans hate us so much Mm. and I was like you know what somewhere in America someone's saying why do Muslims hate us so much Mm -hmm. and I really got how lucky I was that I had, won the opportunity to travel because that is a rare thing. Most people do not leave their four square block area. And then here I was, having gone to all these great places, and I wanted to bring a little bit of that back. And so I was like, you know, it's funny. I thought was, I wanted to open a restaurant, and my friends were like, that's crazy. <laughs> it you, is. You, you, yeah, don't, do that. don't don't do that. So I was like, okay. And then I thought about, well, what other experiences do I have? And I really wanted art to be an aspect of what I did. And I knew lots of small artists who were not being shown or featured at the time. There weren't art walks the way there are now. And that's what led me. So I came back. I looked at my boss and I was like, I think I want to do something else. And he was like, I really want to do something else too. And I was like, great. So I helped him transition out to do what he wanted to do next. And he opened the door for me to be able to open my shop. Um, And I really don't recommend this. Like people ask me all the time. I just leaped. I used my tax return money, which was about $2,600. And I opened my store. (laughs) And now I, I say this all the time. I had friends who were taking bets on how long it would last. And they thought around six months, and then here I am 18 years later, right? Uh, 
but it was definitely like a leap of faith. Those are the best kind, I think, though, if you're really listening to yourself, you know, and and I don't mean something pulls you. Yeah, I don't mean like chasing every shiny object. Right. But I mean, if you're really called to something or something really pulls you and those are some of the best things you can do. (laughs) I mean, and also a belief in something, right? Like, I believe that people actually are good wherever Mm. you go. And there's a few people who try to dominate and mess it up for the rest of us. And in the store, I wanted to make what seemed inaccessible accessible because museums and art shows typically still focus on a particular gaze, a particular eye. But if you run into like a random little shop and you're thinking, oh, I might find some kitschy things. And then you look up and you see art from Afghanistan or Palestine or Iraq. Or, I, I mean, there's there's so many art shows we've done that pushed the political edge, which is the other thing you're not supposed to do, right? Don't mix politics with business. Um, I felt like it gave me an opportunity to open the conversation for people who may otherwise not have that opportunity. And then you find your business is in the center of so many things all at once. You know, COVID began here in Seattle. Yeah. First K, the first death. Um, mm-hmm. You had uh, the Black Lives Matter protests in our neighborhood. In yeah, right where away. you are. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Smack down where you are. You have all of this going on, and your store is exactly how you described it too. You. You pride yourself in in mixing those politics and art. Yeah. And that's everything that seemed to be happening around you. It was politics Mm -hmm. and there was art. So you find yourself in the middle of that. You're trying to keep your business open. How were you through that? I know that's a loaded question, but did you lose your faith at all in that, in in the good people or in in your your vision for your your business? I think that sometimes you get challenged. You say that you want to do these things. You say that you're about to do all these things. And then the universe comes along and says, are you really? <laughs> are, you, are you really who you say you are? Yeah. Are you really someone who can handle anything? And there, there was more than one day when I was definitely floored and definitely emotional. And for me, I felt like the pandemic, the protests, all of it really shone a light for me where my own shadows were. And I think that I still feel like in some ways this virus seeks out wherever you feel the weakest and it just pokes at it. And for me personally, I felt like the last two years was like one of those odd questionnaires I would answer with some friends in my 20s that were like these existential ideas of, you can only save one person. Who would you save? And you, you, <laughs> you know, and suddenly I'm like, I don't like that question anymore. Now that it's a little bit more real, right? <laughs> now that it's like really in my face. Thank you, but no, thank you. But okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on this, and I'm gonna actually like look at it. And at the end of the day, especially as a single mom, like when I go to bed, it's me I have to deal with. And when I wake up that's also who's there. And if I don't deal with those things that are challenging to my humanity, then it can take me out. And I'm pretty clear about that. And because I'm a single mom, I have this other being 
that I'm responsible to. So I don't have the luxury to say, no, I quit today. That just, that's right. That just doesn't get to happen. You know, it's very easy for me to take chances with myself or let go or, you know, I'm like everyone else. I've, I've had mental health challenges, but I definitely see as like, I can't let go for the sake of my kid and then all the other kids who still have so much more to move towards. You know, I, I have transition right into some of the work you're doing now then, because kind of going full circle in our conversation while this is going on, uh, the U.S. leaves Afghanistan. Yes. <laughs> Bye. And once again, fun. you know, I've, it, Afghanistan, you know, we're, we've been there for decades. It pops up again. And then it's the mm-hmm. biggest thing in the world every few years for Americans. And here we are yeah. again. We leave and it's, I mean, from all accounts, it's awful. Did you realize once we left what would happen? Was there any kind of idea that it would be that sudden or that like you had to flee when the Soviets came? Mm-hmm. Um, did you see, was that your initial reaction that people are, would have to leave? So I think sometimes things are in the works for a long time, but they always seem sudden. Oh. And for me, it was two parts because it did immediately take me back to being a kid and my experiences and having that vision and then wondering if some kid right now was having the same experience I had then. Mm. So that that was like a big hurdle for me to get over in the beginning of it. Um, and of course, you leave a place suddenly overnight, there is damage left behind. Like it's like any relationship. Okay, you, you, let's say you're in a marriage and you're you're in there for 10 years. And then one of the two people suddenly says, okay, bye, and then leaves everything behind, all the garbage for you to haul out, the the memories, the like everything for you to sort through. It's, it's not going to be pretty. I don't care who you are. Um, there's a lack of responsibility. And then also there's arrogance too. I think that when you're used to having things easy and usually things working out in your favor... American politics has always sold itself as the savior. And in this case, that arrogance led to a lack of understanding of what was going to come next. And of course, what was going to come next was not going to be pretty. But you really don't have to look far. You can you can look back 100 years and you can see what's happened in Afghanistan over and over again. And you know, you would think that we would learn from those lessons, but we don't. We're just like, oh, maybe I can have it be some other way. And no, actually, it's probably going to be the same if you don't ask people what do they actually need versus I'm going to tell you what you need. Tell us um, what you've been doing. Uh, I know you've been active trying to get families out. Boy, does that hit home. Does that, hit, I mean, so close to home. Yeah. Um, I, I struggled a little bit in the beginning, like I said, because there's there's often a moment where you just return to the basics where it's like, I'm, yeah. I'm a shopkeeper. Like, what do I know <laughs> about getting people out of a country that's war torn? Like really yeah. like feeling a little bit helpless, but somehow the universe always answers. That's, that's the thing that I keep coming back to. Like my sister was like, Hey, we can do this. And um, her leadership really ignited me to come out of the hole that I wanted to crawl into and not come out of. And I got into contact with some really good friends I hadn't talked to in a long time who happened to have 
served in Afghanistan, served in Iraq, come back and is now working at a senator's office. And he reached out and he said, you know, if you have people, I can help you get them out because there's a small group of us that are informally meeting to rescue people because the State Department and the Pentagon and all these groups are not talking to each other. And rather than wait, we're going to do this. So I somehow landed in this position of feeling like I was in some sort of action film. (laughs) You know, midnight phone calls and passports being sent back and forth and um, learning how Google Geomap signals work, where I was like, this is way out of my, (laughs) way out of my realm. But if it means I can save a life, why not? And I don't get to say who that is. I don't get to say who who is important and who isn't. My job is to just do the best that I can for as many people as I can. And some of it was personal in the beginning, too, because my dad had these two employees who he had worked with for, you know, over a decade building schools, building courthouses, um, working on the presidential palace, like, you know, working on historical monuments. And they had been actively applying for ways to get out of Afghanistan. And now they're, they were stuck. And one of the two people I got to see when I went in 2006, and he was so kind to my sister and I and guided us and was gracious. And so it became really personal. Like, maybe this one guy who I know who was so kind to me, the least I can do is try to see if I can help him get out. And after I don't know how many tries, he and his family and 10 other people managed to crawl through a sewer system to the airport and got out. And they're still somewhere in Germany waiting to be processed at these camps, right? And when I got word of that, I was like emboldened, not like, okay, I can stop now. Then it was like, okay, what else can I do? Who else I can I help? And Gazelle had a list of what started out as seven artists that grew to 40 artists and their families who were in immediate danger. And we thought, what can we do? Because they don't qualify in the same way that people who've worked with the military do, right? The U.S. is like, oh, sure, if you helped us in some manner, we'll (laughs) help you get out and we'll give you a visa. But the musicians, the artists, the storytellers, the activists, like they didn't have that grace. And I felt like it was important to try to help as many of those folks make it out because the stories that we tell do teach us and also preserve this idea of a place that once was there. Like, who knows what will become of Afghanistan now? But I really couldn't be with this idea of my entire culture becoming part of this erasure, never to be again. And people wouldn't know that, oh, actually, Rumi was from Afghanistan. And science and poetry and art are huge parts of this place. And that's kind of like, I think, what ultimately led me to see, like, what can I do? And and it ended up being little things. Call whoever you know, ask, hey, what can you do? And raise whatever little bit of money we can to help people get out. And John, you said it was like a full circle thing. I think it was a full circle thing for multiple reasons. Because in the pandemic, when I was like, is my business going to make it or not? Especially when I was like getting rejected for grants and loans over and over again. A friend of mine convinced me to do a GoFundMe. And then my mom told me about this saying in Farsi, which is, which means drop by drop makes a river. And 
I realized like every small action really leads to something great. And that's really what's led us to be able to, I think we have 21 people out now since August 16th. Mm. And it took a lot of work to do it, but that's a start. That's 21 people. That's 21 people. Yeah. And there's thousands of Afghan girls and women all over the world right now doing their own little mini command centers, trying to get out whoever they can. And that's a place to stand. Drop by drop. Hmm. Drop by I drop, little by little. Um, Wajmed, um, during the pandemic and when our businesses were closing and it seemed like the world was ending, mm-hmm. <laughs> you were someone I would text all the time. I'd be like, okay, I need a problem solve this. Who could? Okay, I got to call Wajma. Okay, I got to mm-hmm. text Wajma. And at least in my life, personally, I'm going to get emotional here. That is who you are. You're resourceful and you never give up. And it does make a difference. Like Wajma's little little drop <laughs> makes Thank the you. river for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you if you ever get like. Oh, the city's changing and oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. You get that vibe of Seattle. I, I just yeah. walk into your shop and I, I, every time I'm like, oh man, I love it here. This is, oh. this, this makes me like, I want to change with Seattle. I've, does, I've made a commitment to do that, you know, and not because mm-hmm. I'm usually that guy. It's like, yeah. God damn it. Everything I love is yeah. gone. I hate this fucking place. But instead, yeah. I've been trying like opening the bar or things. Right. But yeah, it, you being there is, is a testament to what's so good about our community. Thank you. So. I have a rule for myself. I and I made up the rule. And I'm clear that we just make up things in general for ourselves and sometimes we don't fess up to it, right? I give up the right to complain about something after a while. I can complain about it for a little bit, but it has a time limit and when that time limit is up, I either give up the right to complain or I do something to shift it. And I tell people this all the time. It's like you really want a different world. You have to put some effort towards the thing that you love. That's right. It's not some magic thing. Like the complaining doesn't really make a difference. And change is inevitable. And my store opened and has survived because a moment was there. And I'm lucky. I'm very clear that I'm lucky that everything lined up in the way that it did to make it happen. And it served a purpose and it's driven by that. But there's going to be a moment when that time is up and that's okay, that the change is okay. There's kids now who are in their 20s and 30s. And now as a 47-year-old, I can be like, ah, I remember when Seattle was so cool and I could do X, (laughs) Y, and Z. But they have their own version of cool. That's right. They have their own version of making a difference. And if I allow space for it, it's probably even better than what I could have come up with. So, you know, I thrive on these like connections, right? Like when you say, Amy, that you texted me, first of all, I'm honored that you would think of me. I can start there. There's there's grace in that. But then money's not the thing that drives me. What drives me is connection. I feel like this life is ultimately about love and connection. And so, you know, you can accomplish a lot, actually, if you just keep looking from there versus looking from I'm scared right now and I feel helpless. One of our questions we want to ask a lot of our guests, uh, what does community mean to you? What does connection mean to you? I, th- I think it's ultimately my love of people. Community is connection, and connection ultimately leads to love, you know. 
anytime I feel funky about anything, if I share it, it's so much better. And that is a muscle I have to practice because culturally, you know, you're supposed to keep your mouth shut, right? Like for me, Afghans are very private people and shame is a huge part of what's active. But I always think if you shine the light on shame, there's so much more grace and freedom. So in connection and community, I think that it just makes everything bearable. Like, yeah, it was really, really a hard time through the pandemic. And it's been a hard time dealing with all the stuff relating to Afghans. But, you know, opening my mouth and seeing the generosity and the love pour out of my community and my world, that makes everything possible. It shifts anything that might seem impossible in my brain as like, oh, no, there's a, there's some movement that I that I can be a part of or create. And what does health mean to you? I always say mental health is physical health and physical health is mental health. Because <laughs> I ask this of my patients or people who take my classes or like, what does health mean to you? Some mm-hmm. people don't even know how to answer that question. I'm I'm definitely in the category of I don't know how to answer it because there's a lot of judgment on my own part or self-critical state of where I think I should be regarding my health and what I should be doing. But really, I think working on your capacity for allowing joy is a huge part of health. Mm -hmm. And it can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes that means I'm in a Zumba class, jumping around like a strange being clumsily, but you know, it's getting my heart rate up, it's having me be physical and it's sweating, and then it's also fun, right? Mm-hmm. And then other times health to me means I really have to close my store right now and I have to give myself a break. Yeah. I have to find a quiet place to sit at or be still in or hyper focusing on something beautiful. And sometimes that can be just being on a drive with my kid and him telling me about whatever is the the latest and greatest in his mind and seeing some tree changing leaves all at once, right? Yeah. I think that's a big part of my sense of health and well-being. Lastly, you have, to, you have to give a recommendation for music. After hearing you, people are going to know, oh, I wonder what she listens to. What do you got? Music is problematic for me because I can't not have it on during the day. Like, I have 23-hour-long playlists that I've made for myself. Um, But I was thinking, a lot of times, mood is related to music for me. And there's this song called A Mermaid in Lisbon. And I love it. It just makes me kind of float away. Who does A Mermaid in Lisbon? Patrick Watson. Yeah. Thank you for figuring that out for me. Yeah. I used to listen to a whole album and now I'm like, wait, I've gotten into the Spotify world and I'm just listening to song after song and hoping I discover something new. Or, you know, when I'm really lucky and I I get the chance, I'm listening to you on the radio or Riz, who's some sort of beacon of love always. The other song, well, the other one that I've been listening to quite a bit too is just going old school back to Stevie Wonder. Mm. Mm. That's also Riz's fault because he did something that I, I did not appreciate. He was like, what if... You know, we were talking about the greats passing away, like Bowie Mm. and Prince. Mm -hmm. And I was like, don't even say Stevie's name out loud. Like, 
Don't don't even say it. And then um, I ran into this old song of his called All is Fair in Love and War. Have you heard that one? Yeah. It's very sentimental. So I think I'm pretty sentimental these days. I'm like leaning towards the sentimental songs. Yeah, I I played the other day, I believe, when I fall in love, it'll be forever. And I am convinced that's one of the top 10 most beautiful songs ever made. And yes. and I liked it before. But now, I guess I'm getting older. I don't know. I appreciate Stevie Wonder so much. That is yes. a fucking perfect song. It's so good. Yes. So good. And it ends one of my favorite movies, High Fidelity. I was like, where have I heard this? And it's he puts it in the mixtape. And I was like, oh, God, this all makes sense. Now. I know. Okay. That's a fantastic movie. He's <laughs> right is. on all the songs in that movie. That's right. That, yeah. And and yeah. the irony of that is like all of us nerds who, who like love music, like, okay, well, let's see how you do this with this, you know, the whole movies around making mixtapes and music. Yeah. And, and they nail it. I mean, even making fun of Bell and Sebastian in it is just like one of my favorite things. I mean, and I love Bell and Sebastian, but yeah. what is this sad statue when he walks in? I was like, oh, these are my people. Well, that Jack Black in that movie is how I describe how not to be towards music to, to, to new DJs or when I'm talking to people about music being precious, like don't. Don't ever get down on someone for not knowing a song or not. Like I tell my kids that don't get, don't get down on people's music taste, even if they get down on yours, because everybody yeah. is different. But everybody knows a Jack Black, right? Yes. And then we also yes. find that in ourselves. Yes. Yeah. I have to yeah. fight the inner Jack Black in me sometimes. Me when too. I'm, when me when too. I'm on the radio too, like I'll get a comment and be like, don't do it. Keep yeah. it to yourself. I know. Well, thank yeah. you for taking so much time and, and thanks for and listening to me go on and on i think gives some perspective that we needed and um on a number of fronts so um mm-hmm. y- you are such a great part of this community so we're we're very very happy to be able to spend some time with you and um we're still gonna have you over for brunch though that sounds fabulous <laughs> i like that i'm always always down with uh having food with people yeah. thanks watch my we love you love you too this season it reminds me Being down and out in Carolina I drove back to California and took my time Had a friend who rode beside me And when we made camp you'd sing for me It seems like such an inconsequential thing But is it any wonder That interview with Waj was so good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. She's an incredible human with a big, giant heart and a lot of sass and a lot of smarts. Yep. And um, I just, I feel so grateful she's in our life. Yeah. And retail therapy here in Seattle is a must shop place to go yes go there support her i have a ted lasso candle i bought from her sitting to my actually i think two or three things to my left that i bought from her store it's an amazing store i love it so much yeah i think she sells online now too oh good the whole covid pivot yeah if you're here in the seattle area and and you want to hit our bar life on mars uh we are at pike and harvard and she is just up the street uh, pike and broadway yep every chance i get i try to go up there and our friends wonderground are right there who sponsored this podcast. That's Look at that right. segue. Wonderground, thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Jody and crew are amazing people. And we've been up 
to their spot. And I, I know they're I know they're supporting this podcast and I'm supposed to say the coffee's good, but the coffee's really fucking good. Like we are coffee snobs. I couldn't get on here and say this coffee's good if it wasn't. And it is amazing. We got to get some more of it. We're out. We're out of it. Yeah, we're out. We could call our sponsor and get a little, you know, something, something, Jody. <laughs> we went through that fast. <laughs> we flew through that. Um, and speaking of that, you can also get discounts over at Flying Apron, our other friends uh, in the old uh, vegan desserts and gluten-free desserts up in the Junction in West Seattle as well. You get a discount for that. So you can go to Wonderground Coffee and use the code Dr. Wonder for a discount. And you can go to Flying Apron and use the doctor and the DJ. For it's a discount. It's discounts. You're not paying for this podcast. We're even giving you discounts as well. Yeah. So your job is to go tell everybody, you know, about this podcast. Um, thank you to everybody who does subscribe and downloads this every week. Again, spread the word. We want to thank our friends at Ruinous Media, as always. Joe, Pat, and Chris. And um, for uh, for putting up with us. And Oh, and Jay. <laughs> and Jay. Thank you, Jay, out there as well. Jay's a new band member. Yeah. When does he stop being the new guy? Until no. we get another new new guy? No, until we remember to say it. Big thank you to uh, Michael Benjamin Lerner, also known as Telekinesis, for our theme music, and Margot Silker as well for her amazing music we've been uh, listening to. We're going to listen to a song now as well. I want to thank my friend Sarah Cahoon as well for sending me that music and just being an all-around good human. We should have her music on here as well. The song I want to highlight, Amy, it was hard because, I, I, again, I like this record a lot. It's just cool. It's just a good record, um, is The River. It's a beautiful song on Margot's new album. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. Far 
smile.